Uh, good morning. Such a beautiful weekend. Oh, I love it. And now today, a good, bright day to spend time in God's Word. That song this morning was very appropriate as a lead-in. We're almost home. So let me, let me open up and ask the, the Lord to bless our time this morning, and then we're going to get into Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. By the way, I didn't get the handouts on, on the back table until the last minute, so there's some handouts back there if you want to track with where I'm going and some of the things I'm saying. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning. It is so good to be in your word. It is so rich and true and good for us. So our prayer this morning is that I'm able to express that clearly, accurately, lovingly, and that your spirit will use it. Give us our ears to hear and hearts that are open to the truth. And we pray it for the sake of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So let's see if I can get this presentation up here. There we go. I am so used to seeing the text back there. Um, let me give... Uh, a little bit of background and structure for the text this morning. Uh, this parable, some of your, your headers will say the unjust steward, is uh, one part of a larger, a larger whole. So the entire chapter 16 it revolves around the central theme of material possessions, the whole chapter. And the outline of the chapter is first this passage, verses 1 through 13, which is about an unjust steward or manager. And I'm going to do that. The next part is the Pharisees, how they respond to that, how they protest in Jesus' response in verses 14 through 18. Doug's going to come next week, and he's going to give us that passage. And then the week after is the rich man and Lazarus in verses 19 to 31. Levi is going to come and share with us that passage. So we got some, some good, exciting weeks ahead. Now, my hope is that your heart's paying attention because it's going to deal with material possessions. And there's a lot of times, even though we don't realize it, we're kind of holding on and sometimes... Some of the things we hear in Scripture challenges that. But this chapter revolves around our attitude toward and the use of material possessions. And this passage, this parable, is not the total essence, if you will, of Jesus' teaching about this. It's just part of chapter 16, and it's part of a broader, fairly consistent scope in Luke Luke talks about this a fair amount. Consider, Jesus gave us 
about 40 parables. And all those parables are in the four Gospels. But I don't know, I've mentioned it before, one out of every three parables deals with money. Isn't that interesting? One out of every three deals with money in some way. It's not surprising that money should have a dominant role in the teaching of Jesus, because it's a dominant role in the lives of the people he was talking to, and it's dominant in our lives. We spend, according to statistics, more of our waking time thinking about money than not thinking about money. Think about that. How, how to acquire it, how to acquire more of it, how to spend it, how to save it, how to invest it, how to borrow it, counting it, sometimes giving it away, loaning it. We spend a lot of time thinking about it. Now, I can attest to that personally, especially recently in my life, because we're thinking of buying down, selling and buying another place without three stories and without stairs. But what does it take to do that? You have to think about money. Money and possessions and wealth are so much a part of this world's experience they dominate, they define, and they determine an inordinate amount of time that we spend thinking about it. Think about this statistic. If you were to be, say, 85, statistics say you would have spent nearly 50 years of your waking time thinking about money. That's like 60%. And uh, you may be shaking your head and going, no, no, no I, don't, I don't think that's true. But uh, I hope in the week ahead, you remember that every time you start thinking about wealth or possessions or money. Well, this parable, the Lord wants to redirect our attitude toward money and possessions. <clears throat> so let me give you an outline of the passage. I'm not getting any action here. There. Can you flip that slide for me? So the, this passage is outlined as follows. Verses 1 through 8, we're going to see the parable itself. He, he gives us this story. And then in verses 9 through 13, he interprets it. And he gives us application with regards to the parable. And then verse 14 is a transition verse. And that's going to that's gonna be used for Doug to take off from this passage into his passage. Let's read it now in Luke chapter 16. I'm going to do the first eight verses. And then we'll talk it through, and then I'll do the, the following verses, and we'll talk that through. Luke 16, verses 1 through 8. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, 
what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Ah, I know what I shall do, so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Now, it's useful to be reminded Jesus teaches and has taught in very unexpected ways using unexpected experiences, and this is one of those. How can you build a sound principle on a man commending an unrighteous steward? What's going on? This guy was titled an unrighteous steward. How can you get any good teaching out of a, such a bad example? Well, Jesus was very good at doing that. Jesus was very good at going from the expected and the unexpected experiences of life and using them as good places to learn from. As we'll see in chapter 18, he's going to talk about an unjust judge. Here the main character is a man identified as an unrighteous steward. And there's no question this man is unrighteous. He's actually evil. He's wicked. He's conniving. He starts out as irresponsible, and he ends up an embezzler. Now, the parable is fiction. It's a story Jesus made up. He created it. He invented it. There's no components other than the ones he gives us here. Nothing complicated about the story. What I enjoy is when Jesus gives parables, many of the times he explains them. So we'll get to that explanation. First, I want to spend some time kind of going down through some of the specifics here because there's, I think, some important points that are being made before Jesus explains what's going on. So let's look at verse 1 and 2. This certain rich man had a steward who was working for him. And it says he squandered his, his possessions. I take it it means he must have helped himself to much of what belonged to his master. Uh, in our culture, that might mean padded expenses, limousines, who knows what, all kinds of 
frivolous spending. The man was consuming much of his master's wealth, but producing very little. He was not working for his master. He was working for himself. Okay? That's the start of the story. The owner was probably an absentee landowner, probably lived in an estate somewhere else, and he had this farming operation or this agricultural effort, and uh, he's elsewhere, and it's under management of this appointed and hired man. The guy's referred to as either a steward or a manager, depending on the translation that you have. So this, this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Now, the manager probably trusted him, and he's not there. You're somewhere else, and word comes back to you that this is happening. A manager or a steward like this would be probably someone who would be a free man. He's not a slave. He'd be high social status, high responsibility. He's overseeing a pretty big estate. He'd be trusted because he'd have the right to act on behalf of his manager or his boss, his owner, and he's got oversight over the full operation of this agricultural business. He manages the land, the crops, responsible for the assets, responsible for the liabilities. He's a full administrator of the estate with all the right and power to act on behalf of the rich owner. Now in verse 2, the owner wants an accounting for what has happened. But what's happened here is... It says it was reported to bring charges or to bring accusations is what it means. It comes from the word diabolos, which is the same word you associate with Satan, slander. The slander comes back to the manager that this is going on, that he's squandering all the resources. He's dispersing them. By the way, this word squander is the same word that's used in the last chapter we looked at with the prodigal son. He's frivolously spending and wasting things. The point here is he's violating the stewardship of what belonged to someone else. That's going to be important to remember because we're going to get into a contrast here. So in verse 2, the owner wants to know, well, what's, what's, what's happened here? And he gives this guy a short period of time before he's going to be fired. And I think the point is he's, he's doing that for himself to perhaps figure out or fix the books or get some more details. And so he gives him a, a period of time. Now, what he didn't realize is the steward's highly motivated to do something because he's in trouble. He's going to lose his job. But he gives him this short period of time. This is not something you want to do in your business. If you're going to fire somebody, you don't give them a short period of time to go and do more damage. And that's what this guy did. 
And we see that in verses 3 and 4. So the steward says to himself, what shall I do since my master has taken the stewardship away from me? Now, he probably lived there on that property. You have to really pay attention to the parable to come up with that as a conclusion. He probably lived on site. The owner was away. And so he's got housing that's provided for him. And now he's not going to have that. He's going to be fired. He says, I'm done. I'm out on the street. I'm on a dirt path. I'm in trouble. No job, no money, no home. And he wants to keep living at the level that he's used to. So in verse 4, he says, Aha, I know what I shall do. The verb that's used here is kind of like he gets a bright idea. It hits him. I know what I can do so that when I'm removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. You see? He doesn't have a home to live in anymore. I'll have some place to go. And so he says, I'm going to do something with them. Who are they? Verse 5 talks about who they are. Verse 5, he summons each one of his master's debtors. These are the people now that he's going to make friends with, and he's going to hope that what he does is going to work to his advantage. It's important to remember the following. In this agricultural society, debt paid in kind was often paid at harvest time. In an agricultural realm, that's what you did. If you owed somebody olive oil or wheat or any other commodity, you paid it when it was harvest time. So we must be close to that point in time. These debts were outstanding, awaiting payment at harvest time. And he's going to go to each one of these guys, and he's going to go one by one, talking them through a situation where he's going to embezzle the owner's money. Reciprocation in Jewish society was a big thing. If you did something for somebody, they did something for you. If you had a luncheon, they would invite you to a luncheon or a banquet. It's the way that society did things. Well, he not only wasted his master's resources leading up to this problem, now he's going to embezzle, in a way, the owner's money. It's very self-protective. It's typical of a guy in the world. That's how worldly people would operate. Verse 6, he says, check your records, check your debts, and then sit with him at the table. And so he sits down, and the first one comes up, and he says, how much do you owe? And the man says, a hundred measures of oil. Now, I think what's a little bit useful here, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I want to explain a little bit about, well, how much money are we talking about here? And it's quite a bit. A hundred measures of oil. Well, 
A measure is called a bath, and a bath is about 8.75 gallons. So that's 875 gallons of oil, and that's about a thousand denarii. A thousand denarii is about three years of wages. That's a pretty big debt, right? Three years of wages. And he says, okay, sit down quickly and write 50. So he cuts the debt in half. That means that he saved about, he saved this guy about a year and a half of the man's salary. That's a large amount of money. Verse 7, he goes on to the next guy. And he says, how much do you owe? And he says, 100 measures of wheat. He says, take your bill and write 80. Well, this would be calculated to about 1,000 bushels of wheat, which would take about 100 acres to produce. So it's a pretty big, pretty big estate. So he says to him, write 20. So a 20%, or I'm sorry, he says to him, write uh, 80, okay? Well, this would be calculated to 1,000 bushels of wheat, and a 20% reduction would be like a two-year re reduction of debt. So the first one is a year and a half's reduction of debt, or sal equivalent to a salary. The second one is two years' worth. These are big discounts. This is a significant amount of embezzling that's going on. Now, they may or may not know he's been terminated, but they're more than happy to go along with this. It could be they know he's the manager of the estate, so he's talking for his boss, or they perhaps could be in on the deal a little bit. The steward was not just unrighteous as a person, he's unfaithful as a steward. He's unfaithful to his task and his work, his work, and he's unfaithful to his master. And it's what necessitated his shrewdness. The manager did not change for the good, he only became more shrewd in doing evil. Let me say that again. The manager, after he found out he was going to be fired, did not change for the good. He only became more shrewd in doing evil. Verse 8. Now, the whole parable turns, if you will, and depends on understanding this verse. The critical question here is, what can a man who's just been ripped off by his employee, a man who's suffered a significant amount of loss, why would he commend a crooked employee? And in verse 8, we get the answer to that. Note carefully, it's an unrighteous manager, and the master here is the master in the story. Now, sometimes this is a little confusing depending on the translations because the word is, 
Lord is used instead of master. But it's a very common term for master. And it's not Jesus who's talking, right? It's the owner who's talking. This manager took advantage of the opportunity. He worked the situation. He manipulated things. And even so, this owner says, wow, you're a pretty shrewd guy. He was impressed. And Jesus makes the point. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Key phrase. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. A way to paraphrase that would be, sinners are more shrewd than saints. That's what's being said here. He's saying the people who are sons of this age, people in this world, not in the kingdom of God, the kingdom who are part of this temporal world that we live in, the kingdom of darkness, the unrighteous, the people not in God's kingdom who belong to this passing world are more clever in securing their future than the sons of light. Well, if we just pause for a second and ask a couple of questions, and we'll revisit these, we could ask, what are we planning for? What are we planning for? Think about the songs we sung today. People in this world plan for a short period of time to be comfortable at the end, maybe even be comfortable along the way. And it's astonishing how the effort, the manpower, the hours, the money that goes into that. When it comes to human life in this age, in this world, they are amazingly shrewd in taking care of their little, brief future, more so than the sons of light. The sons of light, by the way, when referenced in the New Testament, in John 12, in Ephesians 5, in 1 Thessalonians 5, sons of light are believers. Our Lord's words here indicate several important realities. Both the unrighteous steward and his master appreciated the same thing, shrewdness. Both the unrighteous steward and his master were members of a group which our Lord characterized as sons of this age. It's like saying it takes one to know one. The master could recognize and appreciate shrewdness because he valued it and he practiced it. And so he was one with the steward. And then third, neither the master nor his steward were member as members of the group identified as sons of light. That means they were unbelievers. Now the main point here that we're going to get to in the passage is that Jesus wants us to realize we are his managers and stewards. We're not in this world 
as part of this world. And he's creating this contrast. So here, the story's over, and now we're going to come to Jesus' explanation. And this is where I want to focus the rest of the time, and I want you to walk away most with the second half of this passage. So here it is in verses 9 through 13. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, some things to note here about the style of teaching that Jesus is doing, and he does it quite often. Oop, we're way ahead. Get me back to, no, back there. Thanks. There's something we need to note here about how, what Jesus is doing. First thing is, he's teaching by contrast. So the very first part of the passage is a contrast to the second part. The only area of comparison is where, which he says to the disciples, the only way to be like the steward is in the matter of making friends with unrighteous mammon. And even in the way that you do that, it's different than the way that the unjust steward did it. He's really telling us in the first half what we are not supposed to be like. Second, the steward's shrewdness was typical of the way unbelievers act. If we're supposed to put off worldliness, worldly ways of thinking and acting, we've got to be clear on what that looks like, and we're getting a good example of it here in this story. Third, he exposes the hypocrisy and the wickedness of the Pharisees. Now, if you remember back in chapter, beginning of chapter 15, the audience he was talking to was the Pharisees. That is still true. And at the beginning of this passage, it says he was also speaking to his disciples. So the Pharisees are still there. And we're going to see in verse 14 when Doug comes in what they're going to say about what Jesus is saying. And he's exposing their wickedness as part of what he's trying to explain here. Now, this next section is really can be broken into three pieces. Verse 9 is about others. 
Verses 10 through 12 is about ourselves, and verse 13 is about God. That really covers everything, doesn't it? There isn't anybody else. That's it. So let's look. Let's see what he says about others in verse 9. Notice how he starts the passage out. And I say to you, that's a contrast. He's contrasting the story and what it said with what he now wants to say. And he's going to start to apply this. And he says, take your money and do this. Make friends. A lot of people use their money to buy earthly friends. Jesus is telling us, to buy heavenly friends. Use your money, literally, to make friends who are going to welcome you into your eternal home. Like the song, we're almost home. The question is, who's going to be there to greet us? Is it going to be people that we made friends of using unrighteous mammon? They're going to be standing on the edge of glory and they're going to embrace you because you invested in gospel ministry. They heard, they believed, they're there. Now you could, you could say here, well, okay, Pat, we're all going to go to heaven if we know the Lord. I agree. I agree 100%. You might say it's just we're not going to all have the same welcome committee. Right? Think about that. Think about what Jesus is saying here. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth, mammon, of unrighteousness. Mammon, in some of the passages, some of the translations, that's an old Aramaic word for money or possessions or wealth. And it's unrighteous. The reason it's unrighteous is it's in the sense it belongs to an unrighteous passing world. It belongs to the unrighteous life among sinners. It burns up. And in verse 9 it says, so that when it fails, when your time to deal with money is over, it will fail. It's only for here. It's only for this fallen system that we're in. Like we saw in Luke 12, it doesn't matter if you've got barns and they're full and you're building bigger barns. The day is going to come when your soul is required of you and this stuff, possessions, money, and wealth, is going to disappear out of your life. When I think about it, I think about standing in front of the Lord and I don't have my 401k and my checking account and my house and my car with me saying, look what I have for you. That's not how it's going to work. So a question here again is, what are we doing for the future that lasts forever? It's really fascinating. The last couple of years I've been thinking a lot about well, what is money? Where does it come from? How does it even exist? 
And it's amazing that Jesus is telling us to use this unrighteous thing to do something righteous. Isn't that different? And it is so transitory. Uh, as I'm thinking about it over the last couple of years, and you hear about things like Bitcoin and all of the cryptocurrency stuff, well, that just popped up out of nowhere. They just made this up. And now it's got value. I mean, it's amazing. Did you know there's a thing out there called Metaverse? And you can go buy virtual land on the internet that you pay money for, and it doesn't exist. Now, is that not crazy? And people are paying thousands of dollars for parcels of make-believe land. And the closer you get to somebody who's famous, the more expensive the land becomes. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? Even the money that we have in our wallets, we're printing money just like crazy out of nowhere. What is it? It's unrighteous stuff that an unrighteous system creates to do unrighteous things. And we're in that system. And Jesus is saying, you should be thinking about making friends. By the way, you can use this unrighteous stuff, wealth and money, in order to put it towards ministry and make friends for the future. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Lots of ways for us to lose money. But we have a choice to lay it up here or lay it up there. You could take that verse and you could reverse it and say, where your heart is, that's where you put your money. If your heart is here, you put it here. If your heart's there, you put it there. It's that simple. We are not sons of this age. We're sons of light. And the real point of the passage is, is that how you're thinking about it? Make friends for yourselves by the use of material possessions. In that sense, we're similar by making friends, but we're not the same as the unjust steward in how we do it and why we do it. An application point there that I just can't think is any better than to say, we're talking about evangelism and missions. That's where you make friends using unrighteous mammon. We invest in men's souls so they will await us in heaven. Let's keep going. That's others. Now verses 10 through 12, he talks about and he addresses ourselves. Now note, 
Jesus never uses the word shrewd when applying this parable to the disciples. Never did that. He does use a different word. He uses the word faithful. The unrighteous steward was certainly shrewd in relationship to his master, but he was not faithful to him or to his stewardship. And Jesus uses a very important phrase here. He says, he indicates money in itself is not a very important thing. In fact, look at the text. Look at what it says. A little thing. A little thing. A very little thing. He's saying money is a little thing. It has an important function of serving more as a proving ground, testing our ability to handle more important things. So we, as managers of God's resources, we need to achieve righteous ends with it. And we're going to exchange what's temporary for what's eternal and what is unrighteous mammon for true riches. All of these principles with Jesus, which Jesus taught were intended to encourage his disciples and to encourage us to be faithful stewards, not just shrewd, unjust stewards. Again, the main point of the parable is Jesus wants us to realize we're his stewards and managers, but he wants us to realize our responsibility with his money and wealth is not to be shrewd, but how to be faithful in how we use it. Verse 10 is about money and our attitudes towards self. The truth is, circumstances don't determine faithfulness. Character does. You hear people say, if I had more, I'd give more. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. In fact, there's, there's a lot of data that shows poor people give a higher percentage than rich people, even in Christian circles. So don't say, don't say, if I had more, I'd give more. It really doesn't happen unless your heart's right. It's never about circumstances. It's a view of heaven and a view of earth. It's a perspective that either has captured your heart or it hasn't. That's why I liked the songs this morning. Where's your heart? Dealing with money with a heavenly view, never about a matter of how much you have. It's about integrity and spiritual character. If if you're, this is a quote, a couple of quotes here. If you're interested in investing in eternity, you do it. If, you, if you're not, you don't. You fuddle it around no matter how little you have or how much you have or things that burn up. It's where your heart is that determines where your treasure goes. Whether you have a little or a lot, our question is, well, who are we right now? 
Who are we standing here and sitting here? And what's our heart all about? Are you faithful or are you not faithful? It's not just a little thing. It's a very little thing, this money, this mammon. How are we doing with it? That's the question. That's the exhortation. And if you're unrighteous in a very little thing, then that's because of your heart. Verse 11, If therefore you've not been faithful with this very little thing, who will entrust the true riches to you? You got a problem. I got a problem here when we think about this. Not only what we do with our money in terms of perspective, it has implications in our eternal reward. That's what verse 11 is saying. If you haven't been faithful in how you used this unrighteous stuff, who's going to entrust true riches to you? If you don't invest your wealth in the work of redemption, we are impoverishing ourselves in the future. Almost home. Do we think we're almost home? Or do, do we think we're home and then we're going to go on vacation sometime later? How are we thinking about this? And it's we. I got to tell you, it's not like I got this licked. The forces of society and this world are extremely strong in getting our minds off the future home that we have. Now, verse 12 really smacks at home. Verse 12, he says, If you haven't been faithful in the use of that which is another's, there it is again, faithfulness. But notice he says, that which is another's. We don't even own what we think we own. Right? But we don't. <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the feeling. We don't think that way. We think we own stuff. We don't own anything. Nothing. It's not 10% his and 90% ours. That's bad, bad theology. It's all his. He said it a number of times. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Psalm 104, the earth is full of your possessions. God owns everything, all the cattle on the hills, everything. Psalm 67, God, our God, blesses us. He blesses us so that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Scripture's pretty clear. Everything I have has been given to me by God as a stewardship for his purposes. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. He's either going to hate the one or love the other, or else he's going to hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Don't find ourselves playing the game, say we can do 
both can't be done. So one of the key words here has to do with serve and servant. It's actually the word for bondservant. Now here's the contrast, and here's the point that I think is key. We often do not think of ourselves as being bondservants. We may use the term, we may say it gleefully, and then what do we do? Generally, we walk away, and in the days ahead, we don't act that way. We act like we're our own masters. This term bondservant is really a full-time consuming life. He's not talking about an occasional act of obedience. He's not talking about a part-time job. A bondservant was with a master and in debt to serving him 100% of the time. He didn't have a part-time with this master and part-time with another master. That's not how bondservants work. And that's his point. We're bondservants of the Lord, and as the result, we can't serve as bondservants God and then be bondservants of money and wealth and possessions and society that we live in. Can't do it. It's a whole-consuming life. Now, if, you're, if you want to use money for yourself, you're not going to like this sermon. <laughs> you're just not going to like it. It's going to probably irritate you. It's okay. I'll leave that up to the Spirit. You really need to consider how important the passage is. If you're serving God, you're going to say to yourself, wow, I, I need to take another look at what I'm doing here. This is a little bit bigger and more encompassing than perhaps I thought. Passages like this can be, can be tough depending on where we're at in our walk with the Lord. Possession of wealth is a gift from God given to us as a stewardship to be employed. It demonstrates our character, our gospel concern for others, our desire to be good stewards and receive an eternal reward and be pleasing to our Lord. Choosing to honor God with your money is to say, earthly wealth is not my master. Money's a test, test of your attitude towards others. Are you really pouring it into reaching people who can be friends for eternity? Remember, it's not yours. A couple of things to consider here as we think about ourselves at CBC. There are some things that we do that demonstrate at times that we get this making friends for eternity. There are ministries and efforts that we're involved in. For example, Community Vet Care, CBC. 
It's a ministry, a great ministry to invest in for future friends. Dave and all the folks who are helping him on Saturdays doing that work, they've got beautiful opportunities to share the gospel, making friends for eternity. The Ukraine refugee ministry that we're starting to participate in, I think you need to understand that's more than just a relief ministry, physical and emotional relief for the refugees. Talking with Elise at an RLM board meeting last Tuesday, he's expressing to us the hundreds that have gone through their, their um, uh, place of refuge there in Bucharest. He said, there are so many of these people who have never heard the gospel. They've never heard it. Now God has put them in a tough situation, and because they are ministering to them, they're going to hear the gospel. They're hearing it for the first time. And just as a word of encouragement, as we pushed that need out to some partner churches we have here in the States, Fellowship Bible Church and Canton Bible Church, they joined us in participating with sending money over to CBU and Bucharest for help with the refugees. A fair amount of money on our part and their part. And it's all being used, making friends for eternity. The work that, some of the work that Doug mentioned at prayer time with Cuba and Guatemala and Liberia provides a lot of different ways for helping with gospel ministry in those countries, making friends for eternity. And hopefully, hopefully, there's going to be some more local ministries that arise, and we may need some funding to carry it out. So my encouragement would be, get your heart ready to participate in different ways with your wealth, your time, your spiritual gifts, as those things come up. Let's close. Jesus never commended nor advocated shrewdness to his disciples here. The word shrewd is only used twice in the parable. And it's used in the part that's being contrasted. It's what we're not supposed to be like. The Lord never used it in his interpretation and application of the passage. Two, the concept most frequently found in our Lord's interpretation is faithfulness. Faithfulness and stewardship are linked tightly together. But they're diametrically opposed to shrewdness. The steward was shrewd because he had been unfaithful. Three, shrewdness does not characterize us, it characterizes Satan and an unbelieving world, should not be characterizing us as sons of light. And four, this is the, the key one that I want you to walk away with. As in all other areas of Christian living, God's blessing in the area of finances 
is not based upon man's skill or shrewdness. It's based, based on his faithfulness to his, his promises. The area of responsibility we have is in the area of faithfulness. So, our text provides us with a good motivation for stewardship. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm trying to motivate you through God's word. The idea here is your heart. Where's your heart? And we need reminding we're almost home. We're almost home. Are we using God's resources knowing that that's the case.